Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4, we're continuing very briefly our emphasis on evangelism, and we've looked at a few passages and verses, we've touched on them, we've not really dealt with them. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus instructs the disciples to go to Jerusalem to wait for Him for the coming of the Holy Spirit while there was a lot of uncertainty about exactly what it was Jesus was telling them to go and wait for. There was certainly great anticipation in what it was that God was going to do as they gathered together and wait for Him. And we know from Acts there were about 120 gathered on that day. And on that day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and where the disciples ended up speaking the mighty deeds of God. These uneducated, unlearned men, mostly fishermen, began to speak in unknown languages to them. They began to speak in the known languages of all the people who had gathered in Jerusalem for this required feast. They were hearing the mighty deeds of God spoken in their own native tongue. And it was truly... A remarkable event. As you move into Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his first sermon at this gathering, and there are 3,000 people who are saved, and it is obvious that the impact of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is immediately experienced, not only by the believers, but by those who were observing and listening to the words of the believers who had just been filled with the Spirit. So this newly created church was united together by building spiritual relationships that were centered in discipleship and prayer. In the Hallmark verses in Acts chapter 2, we would read in 44 and 45, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. The world had never seen anything like this, not even in the preaching, teaching, healing ministry of Jesus had the world seen anything like like this. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit had changed absolutely everything. Now we're going to focus on Acts chapter 4 this morning, but it is flowing out of what took place in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man, and the result of this healing becomes a point of opposition by the religious leaders. And what we're going to see is a courageous Position by the disciples that is unlike anything we have ever seen through the gospel accounts and radically different from what took place on the day of Jesus' arrest when he was manhandled by the temple guards. The disciples fled, fearing for their own lives, for their own safety, entering into this mode of self-preservation, not wanting to follow Jesus to jail, even though they decreed together that they would die for him and with him in a sign of solidarity. So as we look at this courageous evangelism or evangelistic courage, we think about the word courage. Courage from a human perspective is bravery in the face of danger. It is the willingness to risk your life for the well-being of someone or something else. And we hear stories of that in the news where somebody has risked their life to save a little boy in the street or a little girl who was drowning or somebody else who might have been in a house that was burning. And so we understand what courage is from a human perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, courage is a commitment to speak for God, to speak for God in a hostile 
in an unwelcomed environment. Now, as I say that, let me ask you this question. How hostile is our current culture to the person of Jesus, to the message of the gospel, to the ideals of this thing we cling to called absolute biblical truth? There is this fear that is being pressed upon the mass of our society where they are fearing for their safety, they are fearing for their job, they're fearing for the well-being of their family if they take a stand for God, if they stand for Jesus, if they try to counteract what is cultural relevancy in our world today, there is a great deal of fear being imposed upon people, and we lack a spiritual courage to speak for God and to stand for God in the face of this hostile environment. So to have courage for God means to stand against the world regardless of the threat of the consequence. That's hard to come by, my friend. We all do not possess that. But what we need to recognize is this. In this world, we will always have the tension between fear and faith. Always there will be a fear, excuse me, a tension between fear and faith. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, it's easy to read that verse, and it's easy to applaud David for his bravery, but when a push comes to shove, and it's our time to take a stand and trust in the Lord, do we? It's difficult, isn't it? When you're wondering if you're going to get your pink slip the next day if you take that stand. You're wondering what's going to happen to me and my family if I stand for God, if I speak for Christ, if I hold to my values. So fear is typically driven by what we think might happen at the hands of an unbelieving world. So thinking about this, this tension between fear and faith, would it surprise you to be reminded that there are some 350 fear knots in the Bible? Over 350 times the Bible says fear not. And while the exact specifics of our circumstance may be different from the circumstance of the individuals that these encouraging words were given to, the principle is the same. Fear not, because we belong to God, God is sovereignly ruling over this world and over our lives, and we can really find spiritual rest in Him through our relationship with Him. After the events of Acts chapter 2, we find in Acts chapter 3 this healing of the layman at the hands of Peter and John. This was followed up by a sermon where they declared Jesus as the suffering servant, the resurrected Messiah, the one who is truly responsible for this healing, even though he himself was not physically there. And so after, excuse me, Acts chapter 4 now records the response to Peter and John as they have made this declaration, and we see now the courage that is going to be expressed through their lives as we walk through this chapter together, because it is an entire chapter. We'll look at it in sections. So, number one in our outline, we're going to be looking at the danger. The danger that existed in this moment for Peter and John at the healing of this lame man as they're now going to face opposition. We need to be reminded we're always going to face opposition when we take a stand for God 
always, do not be surprised, it is going to happen. So let's read together, first of all, verses 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people, Peter and John are now finishing up this message, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them and being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So they had healed a man, and they were preaching Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the result of that is very simply, they were thrown in jail. That's pretty stiff opposition, isn't it? I mean, there are some places in our world today, Canada is a great example, there are some places in Europe where people are preaching Jesus and they're being thrown in jail, they're standing against the homosexual agenda and they're being thrown in jail, and they're taking that stand because of their faith. There are people in hockey and baseball who are resisting, taking, participating as part of these cultural objectives and they're being threatened. There's this opposition that is very, very real. And so for Peter and John, they were thrown in jail. We should know that there's always going to be an opposition to Christianity. And while it might not result in our being thrown in jail, it is, we are going to be opposed because of the one in whom we believe and in whom we stand. So this is what Jesus told the disciples as he was preparing to leave them in the upper room. We looked at this many, many, many months ago in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, I believe that that's pretty much a principle that we can we can rely upon is they're going to hate us because they hated Jesus. And because they hated Him, they hate us. And in the same way He was persecuted, we are going to be persecuted as well. And so I think when we sometimes take a stand for Christ, for the truth of His Word, and there is opposition, and people start saying mean things about us, or they start threatening us, we go, God, what's going on? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening to me? Where are you? We shouldn't be surprised. It is to be expected. And this is where our faith in Christ is challenged. And this is where the evidence of courage is revealed in our own lives, our willingness to take a stand, even if we are being threatened with consequence. Now, we may not ever be put in jail for our ministry efforts, but we will likely still fear the, fear the opposition that comes from man and what it is they might do. The absence of physical threat. Somebody going to beat us up. Somebody going to take us out behind the woodshed. Take away our job. Whatever that be. The physical threat or the opposition that we're going to face causes us to protect ourselves. And it surfaces through pride, our desire or need for acceptance or our desire to just get along and go along and not rock the boat. This threat 
that we think might happen is usually enough for most to back down or to remain silent and just kind of let alone. Now, if we don't believe that's true, how could it happen that over the last 50, 60 years in this nation that was once founded upon Christian ideals, biblical truth, Christian morality, how could it be that in just 50 to 60 years, our country is standing for things and they will fight you over those things and they are totally inconsistent with what Scripture teaches. How can that have happened? It's because for the last two plus generations, Christians have remained silent. They don't want to be opposed. They don't want to rock the boat. They're just going to throw up the prayer and just let God do what God's going to let do. And this is the culture that we're living in. What happens over the next generation if this culture remains silent as the previous cultures have? What is our country going to look like? Will we be thrown in jail for preaching the gospel in church? Will your attendance in a church be monitored and evaluated by the authorities? Don't know. We can't begin to imagine what is going to come, but we can look back and say, well, I never thought this was where we would be today. So this opposition is a very big challenge for us, and it's where our faith in God and the realization of courage is is expressed through our lives. So in spite of Peter and John being hauled off to jail, Luke tells us that more people believed in their message and came to faith in Jesus, a total of 5,000 people. So the next thing that we see here is their authority challenged. Not only are they being thrown in jail, but now they are having the religious authorities point the finger at them and say, who gave you the right to do such things? So we're going to read verses 5-7 through here. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? When they placed them in the center, it's an indication that they are now under the bright light of interrogation. You know, that hot seat that we talk about. You know, I got called into my boss today and I was in the hot seat. We understand what that means, but these guys are literally in a hot seat. So after spending the night in jail, they find themselves in front of the most powerful men in all of Judaism. Now, Tony's a school teacher, so it would be the uh, school superintendent, it would be the principal, it might even be a national representative of the Education Association, it might be the union representatives, and here's Tony sitting in the hot seat giving an account for the stand that he took, and Tony's probably sweating. Well, you can apply that reality to your world, to your little niche in terms of employment, and it is a very, very uncomfortable seat to be in. So this is a veritable who's who of religious leadership. Annas, the current high priest, Caiaphas has followed all the previous high priests. John, probably Annas' son. We don't know who Alexander is, but Luke identifies him as a part of this high priestly legacy. And so these are the same men 
who were responsible for the arrest of Jesus and the trial that Jesus sat through when they inquired of him, when they brought false witnesses against him, and they called Jesus to give an account for the things that he had said and done. So there's no doubt that these disciples, Peter and John, know exactly who these men are. They know the threat. They know the opposition. They were just in jail. And so now they question their authority in healing the man and the questioning of the authority that Jesus was subjected to is exactly the same. Now the Sanhedrin is the Jewish council of leadership for the entire nation of Israel. They had not authorized Peter and John to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, just as they had not authorized Jesus to preach the message that he preached. And so they consider Peter and John to be a rebel just like they consider Jesus to be. And so here they are, front and center, undergoing intense scrutiny with life and freedom on the line. Now these men were able to have Jesus put to death. Do you think they could also have Peter and John put to death? You better believe it. And Peter and John understand exactly what is at stake. Number two in our outline is the courage. This is the test for Peter and John. It is the courage. Beginning part of verse 8. Excuse me, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and we'll pause right there, and here's the key, courage is found in the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake about this. You and me do not possess the courage in and of ourselves, to face this intense opposition. Courage is found only in the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice that Peter was not suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. He was simply filled with the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. And this is the continuation of that filling that enabled him to preach these messages and to heal the lame man and to now stand before these religious leaders and give an account for the message that he preached and the healing that was visualized and and, uh, realized through his hands. So this was his new spiritual state of being. It's the same state of being that we share in today. We are filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. To be filled does not mean to get more of something. We've already been filled with Him. We all have Him. But the question is, does He have all of us. We have all of Him, but does He have all of us? When He does not have all of us, then we don't live in the power that He provides, even though we have been filled. Think about it like this. Your gas tank may be absolutely filled to the limit, but if that battery cable is disconnected... You can't fill the gas tank any fuller. It's just not going to start. So in this analogy, the Holy Spirit is the battery power that makes the fuel run through the engine to make that car go. So when He doesn't have all of us, we don't live in the power that He provides, even though we have been filled. It is within the power of the individual to allow himself to be taken over by the Holy Spirit. You have been filled, but we only experience the reality of that filling 
when we give all of ourselves to Him, when we do that, His power is made available to us. We would read this in Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So just as one who is drunk with alcohol is under the influence and the control of that alcohol, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with, it is to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit Himself. It is expressed through our willingness to obey the things that God God decrees for us to do. God leaves the decision up to us. How filled with the Holy Spirit do we want to be? We have all of Him we're ever going to get. But the feeling is realized through our obedience where we give all of ourselves to Him and so we get to decide how much of the filling of the Holy Spirit is actually going to control what we do. The more I allow God into my life and the more of myself I take out of my life, the more filled with the Holy Spirit my life becomes and the more courageous I will become in my witness for Christ. The filling provides us the courage to stand against the opposition. And when we give all of ourselves to Him, the power of that filling is appropriated to us and we will have the courage to stand against this opposition. Number one, courage to speak for God. So in this example that we see here, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, now speaks to the rulers and the elders of the people. Verse 8b, instead of backing down and cowering in fear, Peter stands firm and speaks just as the Holy Spirit leads him. Now, in all reality, this is the moment of truth for Peter. He's been in jail. He knows who these men are. He knows what these men have the capability of doing to him. And he addresses them all. Just two months ago, when Jesus was undergoing his trial by these same men, the disciples scattered, and Peter, when asked, aren't you one of them? Didn't I see you with him? Surely you are one of these. He said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I swear I do not know this man. Self-preservation kicked in, denying that he knew him. And here he is, two months later, filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly standing against the opposition. And this was also exactly what Jesus told them would happen. Not only did he tell them that the world is going to hate you because they hated me first, he also told them this in Luke chapter 12. When they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities which is exactly where Peter is in this moment. Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is exactly what Peter is doing. And this is what we can do since the same Holy Spirit is has also filled us. So not only to speak for God, but to speak in Jesus' name. Verses 9 and 10. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you, to all of you, 
And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ and Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Now, you know what Peter could have said? Well, you know, guys, I'm really, really sorry. I understand that I didn't come and ask for permission. And I understand that what I said and what I did is against your desires and against your wishes. And I am really, really, really sorry. I will never do that again. I promise you, I will never talk about Jesus. I will never try to heal anybody again. Please, please don't take me to jail. That's not what Peter did. Peter doubled down. He said, I am going to speak courageously about the name of Jesus. Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed, by the way, and whom God raised from the dead, as you can attest to, by this man, this guy was healed. Peter doesn't sugarcoat the message. He simply, proudly professes the healing has come from Jesus even though Jesus wasn't there. So speaking about Jesus is central to speaking for God. Speaking generically about God isn't enough. Why? Because there are as many understandings about quote-unquote God as there are people. When you talk about God, you're talking about what somebody might think God is. I saw this just the other day coming from a professing evangelical who said God and Allah are the same. Well, wait a minute. Where do you get that from? That's not my Bible. There is one true God, right? And He sent His one and only Son. And it is by that name alone that man can be saved. And it is by that name our entrance or our Dismissal from the gate of heaven is going to be decided. All roads, all religious roads don't lead to the same God. This is why we must speak courageously about Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh, the one and only sent by God to speak for God, to do what God called him to do. So the lame man was healed by Jesus through Peter and John. And today we can be enamored with names because names can often be associated with power and authority and influence. And we know this, don't we? There are names within Chester County that mean something. There's a legacy. There's a history. And it means power or influence. There are names within our country that have a legacy, and they speak of power and influence. There are names all around the world that do the exact same thing. In fact, one of the most prominent names in our country is is infatuated with the royals, the monarchs of England. And so the new king of England, Prince Charles, is now King Charles. His full name is Charles Philip Arthur George of the House of Windsor. And his titles used to be His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, Knight of the Garter, Knight of the Order of Thistle, Earl of Chester, the Duke of Cornwall, and the Duke of Rothesay, Earl of Carrick, and Baron Referee, Lord of the Isles, and Great Steward of Scotland, and now he is just the King. There's something that is associated with that name. Those names don't describe his military ranks and the various branches of military service in the British or the Canadian Armed Service. And if you are from the royal family, 
People stop and they listen and they take note. And even today, the right name will go, ooh, look at who, we know who that is. Boy, I'd really like to get to know that guy. I'd really like to have contacts that that guy has. If I could just get in that group, man, everything would be better for me. It's all about the name. Well, all of the great names throughout all of history do not compare with the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the King, excuse me, the Alpha and Omega, the Bright and Morning Star, the Chosen of God, the Door, the Bread of Life, the Great Shepherd, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Holy One, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Great I Am. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have been joined to that name, and you stand under the authority of that name regardless of your ancestry or your history or the name that you write when you sign your autograph on whatever you're being asked to sign. We stand in this name and because that is so and because all authority has been given to Him, we should be courageous enough to speak in the name of Jesus. Number three, courage to speak on Jesus' authority. Peter would say here in verses 11 and 12, He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be Saved. Does that mean anything? Well, it means everything, doesn't it? It means absolutely everything. The stone is a reference to the position that Jesus holds as the Messiah. It indicates what it is that gives to Him this authority that Jesus possesses. It was distributed to Him because of His death and burial and resurrection. The exaltation through the resurrection made Him the chief cornerstone. He is the foundational piece of all of Judaism and of Christianity. It is. It speaks of our relationship with God and being a part of His family. His name is the only name... That man can be saved. His position and our union with Him provides us with the authority to speak in His name, to proclaim the truth about who He is and what He has done. And His name gives us authority and He has given us this authority through His own proclamations. We read this in Matthew 16, verses 15-19. through 19. After Peter made the great profession of faith, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And Jesus would remind them of this authority before His ascension. And Matthew 28, 18-20, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Peter and John stand and speak under the authority of Jesus, and we do as well. Nothing has changed. And the reality is very simply this. If standing for Jesus and courageously speaking about who He is and what He has done lands us in jail, we should say, okay, I guess I'll have to go to jail. But the number of people who are willing to do that are few and far between. In fact, most of us are unwilling to speak the name of Jesus because people are going to say bad things about us. Or they might might not invite us to that one event every year where we get to meet a lot of fancy, famous people. Well, I want to risk that. I really like that event. I really want to know those people. And we totally forget the significance that we have been joined with Christ for eternity. We are under His authority. We have been given an inheritance with Him. We share His name. And so we ought to be willing to stand courageously to speak about who He is. Thirdly, in our outline, we see the response here. After push comes to shove and Peter makes this proclamation, risking his life, risking his freedom, there is a response that we see here in several different pieces. Number one, we see amazement. Verse 13 says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Now, they were amazed. They recognized who these guys were. Now, wait a minute. This is that same group of ragtag fishermen that were following Jesus around. These guys haven't been to school. They haven't trained under any rabbis. And what we're hearing is absolutely amazing to us because we know who they are. Do you think that's unique to Peter and John? Do you think if you courageously spoke the truth of who Jesus is and what it is He has done to people in your little world? Do you think they might be amazed at the truth that you possess? Even though you can't answer all the questions, even though you don't have a great pedigree of of doctrinal theology or study? The response was not what they expected. They fully expected these men to cower and to promise to never do it again. And they were amazed at the courage and they were amazed at the words that they'd heard. Peter and John has successfully defended their actions and it left the leader so amazed that they sat in silence. It didn't last very long, but they were silent. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. What what could they say? Just like in the miracles of Jesus, they could not refute the legitimacy of the miracle performed. They were left left with nothing more to say other than, don't do that again. They couldn't refute it. They couldn't dispute it. They couldn't undo it. They were amazed and they were in silence. And we'll hear more about what they say in just a second. So clearly... Jesus being gone hasn't changed anything because now this group of followers are doing the same things that Jesus did and they cannot risk having that continue. And so now they resort to number three, intimidation. And make no mistake about it, if our response is, I'm not going to stop, then that's when the intimidation is going to come. So we'll see this in verses 15 through 18. But when they had ordered them to leave the council... 
They began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they excuse me, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they assumed that their command to stop doing these things would be sufficient. The religious leaders were left with very little recourse of action. All they could do at this point is warn them and threaten them to not continue to do that. The people had seen the miracle. They they can attest to its validity. They are now responding to the person of Jesus and giving their lives to, to him. And there's nothing that anyone could do against Peter and John Excuse me, they could do nothing against Peter and John because they feared what the people might do as a result of that. They always feared the masses, and so they tried to do what they did in secrecy. Number four, as a response here, we see the refusal of Peter and John. This is the actual point where the push comes to stuff. Verse 19 and 20, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whatever is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so this is our question today. Who are we going to listen to and to what authority will we submit to? Will we listen to God and obey Him and submit to His authority? Or will we bow under the authority that exists within man and submit to them? While we must respect and obey civil authority, we must not disobey God in the process. And I believe that our culture has done a very, very good job of blurring this distinction between civil disobedience and obedience to God. So much so that I believe there are some within the Christian community who have also blurred and said, well, we got to obey the law, even if that law is in violation of God's laws and commands. Well, we got to be respectable, upstanding citizens, right? We don't want to tarnish the name of Christ. Well, if we continue to stand upon that idea, our culture is just going to continue to drift in a downward spiral of the sewer because no one is standing up and speaking for God because of the risk that is associated with what is perceived as civil disobedience. So this isn't what the religious leaders are expecting. So at this point, they resort to threats. Their final response here, we see in verse 21 and 22, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been had been performed. So hoping this threat would be enough to deter them, the religious leaders let Peter and John go, and we see the response of the community of believers as Peter and John give a report about what had happened. Verse 23, and when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In this last section, number four, we see the proclamation that is made, and then it is expressed through this prayer. We're going to read verses 24 all the way down to 28. I've got a lot of all-capped words in here, meaning these are direct quotes from the Old Testament. And so here's what it says here. When they, the believing community, heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth 
took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom He anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So, they are basically identifying, they are proclaiming the unique authority that exists at the hands of God, the one who created all things, the one to whom all the real power belongs, and they are very simply acknowledging, we belong to you, we live our lives under your authority, we live our lives and express this ministry under the power that you give to us. And so here is the specific prayer that they pray in these final verses in Acts chapter 4. It is very simply a prayer for greater boldness. They did not pray for a lack of opposition. They did not pray for there to be no persecution. They very simply prayed for greater Boldness. Here's what these final verses say. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I think it's really interesting that they didn't pray that the religious leaders would leave them alone, that they could just do what God had called them to do and to do it in peace. They simply prayed for greater boldness. So here's a big question for me. What about God has changed since Acts chapter 4? What about the filling of the Holy Spirit has changed since Acts chapter 4? Not a thing. This is what's deeply convicting to me personally and I hope to us corporately. This question, what are we attempting individually and corporately that could not be accomplished without the help of the Holy Spirit? What are we doing individually and as a church that doesn't require the work of the Holy Spirit? Is there anything that we're doing now that couldn't be done if the Holy Spirit just pulled his hand away? See, that the challenge is we individually and as a body of believers always need to be moving forward in faith, trusting to God to do what only He can do. God, this is something only You can do in me. This is something only You can do through me. If what we do together as a church can only be explained by God, by us, we don't need the Holy Spirit. It's all about us. So we have to step out of our comfort zone and trust God. We have to pray that the Spirit would make us courageous and stand behind that prayer. And then speak for God. Speak in the name of Jesus. Speak courageously under the authority of God. Jesus said, You are Peter, and upon the rock of your profession I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
We are His church and the power of this world cannot stop it. But we can refuse to we can refuse to walk in the authority and the power that God makes available to us and just do the status quo. Jesus didn't die for the status quo. I really don't believe this church was established just for the status quo. But that decision is one that we share together. And the more of us who share that together, the more God will do that can only be explained by Him in us and through us as a body of believers. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we